Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, migrant children forcibly separated from their parents arrive in New York to protests. The mayor's appointee in charge of New York's mental illness and substance abuse initiative, plus an expert on cults with her take on the alleged sex cult, Nexium. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. Wednesday night, immigrants' rights groups got word that planes were arriving at LaGuardia Airport carrying children who've been taken from their families at the border to be placed in federal facilities in this city. The activists put out the call for people to show up, document, and protest. And they did, by the hundreds. One person who was there was activist Linda Sarsour. She joins us now by phone to tell us what they witnessed. Linda, thanks for joining us on what's been a crazy, dreadful, gut-wrenching week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell me, when did you, when and how did you learn that these planes were arriving at LaGuardia? So on one of the flights, there was actually a woman who was not a Spanish speaker who started, who knew somebody and sent them kind of a message, hmm. letting them know that she saw children on a flight. In fact, she uh, Google translated on her phone a message to one of the children that she wrote on a piece of paper, passed it to one of the kids, and the kids passed it back to her and actually put his name on it and the name of his parents. Wow. And then Cristina Jimenez, who, as folks know, is the executive director of United We Dream, which is the largest network of undocumented youth in the country, uh, immediately got word with Sash Kotler of Ben the Ark Jewish Action and went to the airport, and they were able to witness the first kind of round of about seven children who were wearing brown, uh, excuse me, black, black and brown, black and, black and blue sweats. Uh, sweat outfits and holding clear plastic bags uh, with their very, you know, little belongings that they had. So oh, immediately, uh, Christina, um, and they were, there's a video that, um, that the Ark Jewish Action has posted. I also have it on Twitter mm. where you can see these children very disoriented walking towards the vehicle like a minivan. And Christina, who speaks Spanish, uh, was speaking to them and to the escorts. But of course, as you probably might imagine, they were not speaking back uh, to her. So you know, the call came out, we all went out to the airport because there were a couple of more flights coming uh, that mm. evening or from uh, Texas in particular, which is where the, a lot of these kids and separations are happening. So we went out there, we had signs that in Spanish that said, we love you, we see you, we're here for you, um, kind of waiting to see if more children come out of these flights. But in general, the, the, the atmosphere was just somber, like the fact that we yeah. have to do this in 2018, and our president has lied to us and said that there would be no longer family separation, but we're witnessing children hundreds of miles away from their families coming to a place like New York. We also online have heard children going to Michigan and in some of the other, you know, other states in the country. So it's just outrageous that we're in this moment, but it was inspirational to see New Yorkers um, you know, take the call and, and come to LaGuardia, just like they came out for us on the Muslim ban um, mm. last year. I mean, yeah, that's, that's heartening and what's been a terribly disheartening um, week, month, year, two years. Um, so tell me, um, the governor's office said the other day that they knew of about 70 children in federal facilities in New York, but do we have a, a better sense now for what the numbers may be for how many of these children are arriving in the city? Yes, it looks like it's between 200 and 300. In mm -hmm. fact, Council Member Mark Levine out in the Washington Heights area is uh, using his office as a drop-off. Mm. Uh, for folks, and I would love for folks to visit his Twitter account, um, his his uh, office, and, and call. They're looking for diapers, Pedialyte. They're looking for clothing for these children, making sure that the children have everything they need, at least in the time that they're going to be with us. Some of these children have been taken to Harlem. 
there's a particular organization in Harlem who's basically now in charge of the foster care. And this is the, the most heart-wrenching part, is that not only are these children being separated from their families, but now they're going into the foster care system, right. and that could be indefinite, and we don't know when they're going to be reunited with their family because our administration has admitted that there's going to be no special efforts to reunite the children who have already been separated from their families. Right. The other thing that the ad I was just going to say, there was nothing in the executive order um, about no. that, right? Yeah, and the other thing that the advocates are also very concerned with is um, similarly to what we saw with Puerto Rico, our country or our administration told us 64 Puerto Ricans died due to Hurricane Maria, and then we find out it was more close to 5,000. So now the numbers nationally are over 2,000 children were um, separated from their families. The question is, how many actually? Like, we don't know. Right. It could be 2,000. It could be 10,000 for all we know. Right. But we, we can't do know right now. Yeah, there's no counting. But right now, we what the numbers we have, and it's coming out from um, this agency who's now going to take on these cases. It's between two to 300 in New York City. Wow. And we've heard reports about kids being drugged, kind of sedate them. I mean, to sort of so they don't have to, I guess, deal with with the trauma that the kids are facing. Is that something you've heard about? Yes. Unfortunately, um, you know, mainstream media outlets are covering this. Um, in fact, I also saw a recent report today from the Associated Press that. Children uh, who are being held in a youth facility out in Virginia um, are, are, are saying that they were held in solitary confinement. They were held nude um, in concrete cells, shivering uh, and talking about abuse and beatings. Like, we have to understand this is not just about not wanting to hold children in, in camps or in whatever way you want to describe it, in prisons and jails. On top of that is already wrong, even if we had the best facilities ever. Right. So that's already wrong. Yeah. But the fact that they're also in inhumane conditions and that we are treating them like they are criminals is absolutely outrageous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know of a child that's going to lie about the treatment. I mean, just the, the, the children that, that came yesterday, the disorientation, the, the, the lack of emotion. Like, there was no crying. There was no, like, take me back to my mother. I think they have cried enough. And I think by the time this journey had ended for them, it, it, they, might have, they might have given up already, which was why we right. thought it was important to go out there and just hold, be silent and just hold some time to let them know we're here and we're fighting for them. Well, that's great. And Linda, we're, we're just about out of time. Um, in these final moments that we have, I wonder if you could tell our audience what they can do if they want to get engaged with this issue, if they want to come out, if they want to demonstrate, if they want to help. I know you mentioned um, Councilmember Levine's um, office and in, in providing diapers and Pedialyte, things like that. Is there anything else people can do to, to get involved and to try to help out? Go to every action that you hear of. There is no one action that's going to solve this issue. But quickly, on June 28th, if you are a woman and you are tired and exhausted of all this atrocities happening, sign up at endfamilyseparation.us and come to Washington, D.C. and engage in an act of civil disobedience. It will be the largest woman-led civil disobedience we've ever seen. And then on June 30th, as you know, Families Belong Together is doing actions all over the country, including in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Find out more information. Show up. Keep showing up. Stay loud. Stay informed. Support local immigrant-led organizations, $20, $50, whatever you can give. We have to unite and we have to invest in making sure that we're protecting our immigrant families. Right. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And we'll hope to have you in the studio soon to talk about a whole array of issues we'd love to speak with you about. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Coming up, a conversation with recently appointed executive director of New York City's Mental Health and Substance Abuse Initiative, Thrive NYC. 
Mental health issues have been in the spotlight recently with suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Both had ties, of course, to New York City. Speaking of which, according to the mayor's office statistics, 8% of city high school students report attempting suicide, and 73,000 report feeling sad or hopeless each month. On the issue of substance abuse, overdose deaths outnumber both homicide and motor vehicle fatalities. To stem some of these crises, in 2015, the mayor and his wife, Shirlene McRae, introduced the Thrive NYC initiative. Earlier this year, the office appointed Alexis Confer as executive director. Ashley recently sat down with her to talk about the progress they're making. Here's that conversation. Alexis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ashley. So just to get started, what is the overall mission of Thrive NYC? Why was this initiative created? Sure. Um, so Thrive NYC uh, has evolved uh, over the last two and a half years. It was launched almost three years ago this November by First Lady Shirlane McRae. For 11 months, the First Lady started sitting down with New Yorkers, mental health professionals, community groups, and really found that there was a need and a void um, to create a, a place for New Yorkers to have access to providers of mental health, mm -hmm. but also that there was such a stigma associated with talking about addiction and mental illness oh, and yeah. um, and all those things that face so many of us. One in five people have some sort of mental health crisis. Oh, yes. Um, and that means that the other four out of five people are family members or friends or community members. And so mm -hmm. she had this idea to launch an initiative for the city. And so it started with a roadmap for 54 initiatives based mm -hmm. across our city agencies. And now we're really thinking about how do we make this sustainable beyond an administration? How do we make right. this so part of the fabric of New York City and beyond uh, that it lasts mm. in the years to come and really changes people's lives. So we're trying to embed mental health in all policies throughout the city. What I'm wondering is that the new agency has received significant funding from the right. city budget. People know that. So $850 million. Yeah. How's that being allocated? So the $850 million is allocated across agencies. So about half um, of those programs of the 54 in the Department of um, health, but to give you a sense of the scope of the work. So one, it is for all New Yorkers, all ages. Right. We definitely recognize that um, when you are dealing with young people as well, you need to create additional resources for them to have um, yeah. this experience very early on in their mm -hmm. lives. So some of the money is allocated towards putting uh, mental health consultants in schools. Some mm -hmm. of it is going towards putting social emotional learning uh, into classrooms with pre-K children. So that's wow. basically like how do you start uh, training a child's EQ uh, early on in life as much as you're helping with the IQ. And so mm -hmm. what are those supports that kids need? And they're talking about, um, I'm the boss of my own brain, is the type of things that these wow. kids are learning to say. And think about that reverberation that will happen when they go home to their families, that they're saying, I'm the boss of my brain, I'm going to breathe in, I'm going to do these exercises to, to calm myself in that moment, and it starts mm -hmm. having an impact on the, um, the adults in their homes. Um, to the point of the budget, though, so it's, it's our NYC Well 24-7 uh, talk, text, chat line which you can reach out to any point of time, whether it's for you or for a loved one or for a community member to get right. directly connected to a counselor or to have a mobile crisis unit if it's something that's more urgent. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really these 54 initiatives, but also the whole apparatus that would go into that as well. So it was standing things up from scratch two mm -hmm. and a half years ago um, and, and hiring those full workforces. So we have mental health service corps, which are um, uh, clinicians that are early on in their career who are mm -hmm. embedded not only in primary care facilities but also the Alley Forney Center and other groups, uh, other places that wouldn't typically have 
um, a mental health professional in that space. So it's really about changing the whole landscape of, of where people are positioned. That's what it sounds yeah. like. That's mm -hmm. what it sounds like. And it also, you know, I got to tell you, to be perfectly honest, yeah. I don't think I've ever ever sat down with anybody who was working this closely to political bodies who talked about EQ. Uh, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Right. Um, and about uh, building emotional intelligence in children, which I do think is so important and right. so often overlooked. It's one of the things that I actually uh, really dig about Thrive NYC sure. is that it's looking at that specifically. Um, and Shirley McRae, as the First Lady, you know, described your hire as part of a resetting yes. phase. Why resetting? Why is sure. that necessary? Well, I'll be honest with you, Ashley, I'm not a clinician by trade. I mm -hmm. see myself as an implementer and someone who's a part of movements. I was hired uh, graciously by the de Blasio administration to run the first uh, implementation outreach campaign around pre-K for all mm -hmm. and figuring out how we found those, those four-year-olds. And so I think they recognize that we've done all this good work early on and the First Lady has been the heart, soul, vision of this entire process. Right. Um, but now, you know, we recognize that every single day is urgent. We only have so much time to be graciously um, in office. And so how do you lay the foundation for this to live beyond this administration? How do you really embed in the culture of each agency that will mm -hmm. live for decades to come in the mm -hmm. way that pre-K is embedded? I mean, uh, there are so many families now that have seen the benefits of that government program so right. much that it's kind of just like a, an expected moment in time that, that you'll have education for your four-year-old. That wasn't the case um, only a couple of years ago. And oh, so, absolutely. so we're resetting, we're thinking about how does this fit into the larger discussions around mental health, mental wellness. Um, we have a coalition of 200 mayors called the Cities Thrive Coalition. We're starting to talk about this in their cities and we're having people reach out to New York constantly now to say, we love what you're doing there. How are you doing this? How are you doing wow. this community organizing approach? Um, and the resetting too is really embedding in the community. So when I worked on the Obama campaign in 2012, we often talked about, you, know, you can bring in as many organizers as you want, but how do you leave a real legacy in those communities? Right. And so it can't just be government workers doing yeah. this type of uh, long-term sustainability. It has to be you know, people who are well-respected, like faith leaders and mm -hmm. local elected officials and moms and dads and people and teachers, people who are really a part of the fabric of their communities who are saying, we'll make this a priority. I think it's the difference between um wanting to be a savior and wanting to give people access to the tools and resources that allow them to save themselves. That's right. Um, and I, I, I mean, personally, I think that that's sort of um, more progressive than it should sure. be, to be perfectly honest, okay. to want to implement those sort of things into the lives of children and to be perfectly honest and then through them into the, their homes That's and right. into the rest of their lives. When we look at some of these high profile suicides over mm -hmm. just the past couple months, Anthony Bourdain, uh, Kate Spade, are we looking at a national crisis and if that's the case, then how does Thrive NYC help curtail some of that here in this city, but also across the country? I mean, it's been, I think, a devastating time for all of us, and it, yeah. it makes us really recognize that this isn't discriminated by wealth or race or class. It's, it's everyone's affected. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're seeing very well-off well people who are also um, feeling that deep pain that, you know, I, I can't imagine how difficult it was for them or for their families. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, I think initiatives are always a start. Um, you know, suicide is preventable, treating depression is preventable, but only with the, the right resources and the right support and the right recognizing of signs. And so one thing we recognize is that, that Thrive is starting to begin a discussion where people recognize that there actually are ways 
they can get that help and access. Mm -hmm. And we're also seeing that families and communities, you're talking about uh, Saeed Vassal, um, so many in the community recognize that, that he was struggling with mental health issues. And so right. how do we really equip people to be the first first responders in their community? How do we mm -hmm. equip them to recognize when uh, when your loved one is, is struggling, and, and obviously we all have to share that burden together. It has to yes. be in conjunction with mental health yes. initiatives. It's not just on the families, um, but a way for us to really start a dialogue about it, so that you know, if your brother or sister, whoever is struggling, you feel like it's not a hopeless element that you can call somebody. That someone's there to listen. So, I, I you know, my heart is with all of the families that have experienced that. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so traumatic, um, mm -hmm. but I do think there are there is hope in terms of resources and supports and, and discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, something interesting um, that I find about you when I look at your resume and your background yeah. is that the things that you tend to get involved in don't read to me like opportunities to move up a ladder. They read to me like opportunities to be impactful in important spaces. Thank you. Why is this space so important to you? You know, th thank you for saying that, and I, I feel the same way about your background. Um, you know, I, I think we need to lead from behind and go to spaces where we can serve. Um, mm -hmm. I'm very lucky that, you know, I grew up, my dad's a pastor, my mom's a nurse. Um, we very much always focused on, you know, how do you kind of walk humbly and, and find a way to really be impactful in people's lives. And for mm -hmm. me, the mental health space has so much room for people to be helpers and to come yeah. in and really connect the dots. And mm -hmm. so when the First Lady Mayor asked me to be a part of this, I felt like um, it was a way that I was feeling very helpless of how to be impactful in these kind of trying times as a country. And Absolutely. this felt like a meaningful way to roll up my sleeves, to be with community members. And I feel inspired every day. I mean, I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm very proud of my mother who has 22 years of sobriety. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it affected our family. Um, and each family has their own personal story to share. And so I, I like to go where I feel like people are starting to support one another and mm -hmm. um, take real action steps. You know, yes. I think that this is a place where there's tons of action that needs to be taken. Mm -hmm. um, and you're the person to do it, I think. <laughs> I think <laughs> um, I feel really good about this with you behind Thank it, you. to be perfectly honest. Um, where should folks go for immediate assistance if mm -hmm. they need something right now? You know, Thrive to me sounds like a great setup. And it sounds like a great way to build um, the foundational tools that will allow you to know these things and care for yourself this way in the future. But, you know, I, I can tell you personally, people in my life, people who I know, people who I see in my neighborhood, right. you know, everybody is like, it just seems like there's this one thing that yeah. can happen and yes. people need help that quick. Right. Where do they go? So I would say 188-NYC-WELL, uh, so that's mm -hmm. our 24-7 talks, text, chat line, um, and there are counselors standing by who can help people navigate. And once again, it doesn't have to be um, you're calling for yourself. You can call for that brother or sister that you're, you're worried about. You can call for yourself, and, and mm -hmm. it could be anything from you are feeling intense crisis, and they will get you to someone, and obviously 911 is always an option if it's uh, urgent crisis, but... Um, we have mobile response teams that can go to somebody in crisis. We have um, anything from just being referred to a counselor as well for ongoing care and treatment. So that really is a place that we're trying to um, make it as easy as possible for people to see the avenues for their, for their health and recovery. And we want people to see mental health the same way they see their physical health. Mm -hmm. You go to a gym for your body, you go to a doctor for your body, where are you going for your mind? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this is you know, a time where we have to like, address that head on and say, there are resources available to you, and it shouldn't be stigmatizing. It should be on your calendar, just like your annual checkup is for your, 
your physical well-being. I think that'd be amazing. Thank you so yeah. much oh, for being you. here today, Alexis. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. The case of the alleged sex cult Nexium unfolding in Brooklyn federal court has introduced a macabre, sadistic, prurient new narrative to city folklore. But it has also raised issues of subjugation and how people can be forced to do things against their interests and even be driven to criminality by charismatic individuals. Many were shocked that popular young actress Alison Mack was part of this group and that other young actresses were allegedly preyed upon. In an effort to understand the lure of such groups and the vulnerability of those under their sway, we welcome our next guest, an expert in cultic studies and a professor at St. John's University. Robin Boyle-Lazier, welcome to Woman 2BK. Thank you for having me. So first, could you just tell me, um, what, how did you come to be a specialist or become interested in cultic studies? So when I was a college student, I was very much involved in different activities, environmental causes and women's rights. And I noticed that there were a few individuals who were recruiting college students to these causes who were using unscrupulous tactics. Mm. And it took me a few years to move away from some of these individuals. And later on, I went to law school. And when I came out, a friend of mine introduced me to someone who was the president of what is now the International Cultic Studies Association. Mm. His name was Herb Rosedale. And I met with Herb, and he introduced me to the organization. And I've been researching and writing about cults for about 20 years now. Wow. So some of these um, unscrupulous practices that were luring young women in, and, and I wonder, we could maybe talk about this later, if it's usually women who are the ones who are preyed upon to join cults, although I imagine it's both genders. But um, were they being lured into cults at the time that you were in college, or what you so might you, consider a cult? So um, at the time, there were both men and women, more women than men, at, in, from what I observe. But nationally, both men and women are lured in. And it seems as if the average age in the US right now is in the mid-20s. Mm. Back in the 60s and early 70s, the age was younger. It was college age. So let's talk about the term cult, because it seems to be used rather liberally today. Uh, even, you know, people saying that the Republican Party has become the kind of the cult or a Trump cult. Um, what do you think the identifying traits are of a cult, and what differentiates it from just a group? Sure. So the ICSA provides factors that we could take a look at, characteristics on its website, but I could share a few with you. Please. Usually a cult has an ideology, and it could range from horseback riding to religion to politics to psychology. It runs the gamut. Usually that ideology is held above all others, that it excludes the rest of the world and isolates its members. It's usually run by a charismatic individual who uses mind control, undue influence against its members to be religious, as you will, to the organization, mm -hmm. to adhere to its tenets. And it usually uses unscrupulous tactics, sometimes criminality. Hmm. And so you've been following in the Nexium case. Can you yes. tell us about what your understanding is of Nexium? Sure. And if they qualify based on some of these characteristics? Sure. So um, as a spokesperson for ICSA, we do not label an organization a cult, and we direct people to the website to look at the characteristics. However, I have to say that I read the complaint that was filed in federal court recently against Nexium in the Brooklyn Federal Court. 
And the facts that are alleged in that complaint, now at this point in time, they only need to en allege enough facts to establish probable cause. So more facts will come out, I'm sure, at trial. But the facts that they have alleged meet many of the characteristics mm -hmm. that are hallmarks of cults. Mm -hmm. They had a charismatic leader. They had a a Ponzi scheme, if you will, of um, recruitment. They had the the witnesses are alleging that they were fraudulently induced to do some of these things. There was, um, interesting enough, they used the sex trafficking statute, mm -hmm. and there's also a component of that which is labor trafficking, because they use their quote-unquote slaves mm. to perform acts of labor. Hmm. So it's both, it meets both the sex trafficking and the labor component of those statutes. Right. So there's nothing per se that is illegal about cults, but you That's have right. to sort of find them breaking other laws if you find that they are acting in ways that are harmful to the individuals who are members? That's exactly right. So a cult is not an illegal entity according to our U.S. laws. And just for our radio audience, a quote unquote, and not an, quote unquote, an illegal entity, right? Is not a legal entity. Oh. However, or an illegal entity. Or right. an illegal entity. However, some of its behaviors and its conduct mm -hmm. can be illegal. Mm -hmm. So there could be a benign cult in which it does not engage in criminality, but there could be very dangerous and destructive cults, which mm -hmm. can. And have you looked into how people can fall under the sway of cults and what makes an individual, say, vulnerable to becoming to, to the membership? Yes. There are many different ways that people can be recruited into a cult and many different personalities are recruited into cults. There's no one personality type. What we have noticed from people who have exited cults, that they usually join at a time when they are vulnerable in their life. Perhaps they're going through a transition or that they're looking for an answer to something. But sometimes there is an outright fraud in the recruitment and they don't realize what they're joining mm. until it, they're already in there and being indoctrinated. We've had a producer on the show who's been following the case, the Nexium case, and been going to some of the hearings. Um, she noticed that the lawyers representing Keith Raniere, who is the alleged cult leader, uh, said in court that the members of Nexium were all consenting adults who joined of their own free will. I wonder what you might say about that. That's a fair question. The complaint that I read has two witnesses, Jane, one, Jane Doe 1 and Jane Doe 2. Both of those witnesses claim that this was not their free will. The interesting thing about this particular organization is that it used what they called collateral to, according to the complaint, to force individuals to do certain things, whether it be labor or sex. So, for instance, they held on to private information. They held in, on to private information of those individuals' families. They asked for nude photographs and so forth. Some of those photographs they turned over, so some of the photographs they photographed. So they held collateral. And I think holding collateral is a very good fact that could be used to establish control and coercion. Hmm. And I imagine a lot of quote-unquote cults might say that, that people have joined of their own free will. That is often the defense, and it is difficult to prove a court case using undue influence as a cause of action and also 
trying to prove either from the side of the prosecution or the side of the defense that someone was subjected to undue influence. It has been an evidentiary nightmare mm. in order to establish undue influence on either side of litigation. These statutes that they have used have moved beyond that evidentiary hurdle mm -hmm. because they've looked at other kinds of conduct when they constructed these statutes. So I am optimistic that if these facts hold true, again, they're innocent until proven guilty, and so a trial is yet to be mm -hmm. um, produced. But if these facts go along the lines of what has been alleged, I think that they can very well make out the elements of the statutes. So they don't have to establish undue influence, which you said is, is, a, is a tough hurdle. Right. Um, I wonder, because this case is being prosecuted, it's the reason we've come to know about Nexium. but I imagine there are many organizations like this that are still beneath the radar, or what might we assume about that? Okay, yes, you can assume that. This organization we did not know about because the quote-unquote slaves were sworn to secrecy. Which is very typical of many cults, that they exist in isolation, but they can also exist within an urban area, but its members are told not to share details with the outside world. The numbers of cults are very hard to ascertain. They do not file, of course, IRS documents. Many of its members may not even have birth certificates. We have second-generation adults born into cults that are going undocumented. However. From estimates of interviews of people who have left, I have heard the lowest number of cults in the United States today is 2,500. The highest number I've seen is between six and 8,000. Hmm. So the cults today seem to be smaller in terms of the size of the organization. People seem to be picking cults that are smaller and perhaps less known about. Mm -hmm. The ones that were more widely known, people seem to be not joining as frequently as they used to. It may be because the larger ones have gotten a lot of bad press and people are reading things on the internet. But for instance, these smaller cults can range anywhere from a political organization, as I said, to a religious group that is going too far afield. Hmm. And I mean, you talk about the number of cults that are out there. Many of them, of course, are not being prosecuted, perhaps because we don't know about a lot of their activities. But are cults necessarily bad things? I mean, the president's son, get, to get back to, to what people have said about the Republican Party being a, you know, a cult of Trump or Trump's cult, the president's son said, well, if people like it, then that's OK, kind of basically saying, well, it's OK if it's a cult. So I would have to say that a Republican or Democratic Party is not a cult for the following reasons, that we know what they are. We are not fraudulently induced to joining them. We know what they are when we go to a meeting. And our personalities do not change once we become mm -hmm. members. So regardless of which party you're in, you're aware of who you are and your identity. The danger of cults is that the personality changes because of the way in which they indoctrinate and they retain their members. Sure. So their psychological coercion changes the ultimate person. Mm -hmm into someone else. And I think, though, when people are talking about it, I mean, they're, again, they're using this term loosely. They're saying they're falling under the sway of a charismatic leader, maybe being brainwashed a little bit, that charismatic leader, of course, being Donald Trump, um, who, you know, has, it's been demonstrated many times that he is not uh, averse to uttering many falsehoods. 
um, to bring people under his sway. So I think that's what people are referring to. But again, it's probably one of these loose usages of the word. I agree that it's a loose usage because it's not as if we're all living within his compound. Um, also, if one were to join that party, they are free to come and go. Sure. It would be different if they were stalked. Mm -hmm. It would be different if there were coercive means to keep them as members or sexual abuse mm -hmm. and, and the like. So these kinds of tactics are used within cults, which sure. makes them so dangerous. Right. So uh, introducing, as always, the president is a bit of a distraction, so I you know, almost regret doing that. But to get back to the original question about cults being necessarily bad things, is it that they are because of the coercion? Is that the idea? That is what differentiates a cult from some other organizations. And um, however, interesting enough, I think that these statutes can be used to prosecute cult leaders. In mm -hmm. fact, I wrote about that in a law review article for mm -hmm. the Oregon International Law Review. Mm -hmm. the, what is so dangerous about them is the coercion, the change of who you are, the change of your understanding of what's right and wrong, and people who on the outside of cults would never commit these kinds of crimes or stand by and watch atrocities, they are then recruited and behaving in a way in which they never would have behaved mm -hmm. had they not been inside the cult. Is there a cult in your study, in your memory that you think of that is kind of an exemplar of, of a quintessential cult, one that, you know, is probably in our, you know, our consciousness in the United States that you might point to to say, like, this was a, a cult that kind of exhibited all of these characteristics as kind of just a, a paragon, I suppose. So I've written about a few of them, such as um, FLDS, the Mormon sect that practices polygamy. I've also mentioned Heaven's Gate. I've mentioned the um, Temple of Heaven. I've mentioned a number of these cults in my writing. And I think that um, when we look at the ones in the headlines, they very much resemble the characteristics that are so common among cults. The same thing with Charlie Manson's group. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you coming you. on and elucidating it. a lot of this for us. Thank you. So that's the show for today. Have a great weekend, a lot going on. Manhattan's Pride Parade is on Sunday, and also right around the corner, there's BAM Cinema Fest, which includes a documentary I co-produced. It's about New York City cops who are suing the department for quotas and discrimination. If you're interested, the documentary is called Crime and Punishment. Have a great weekend. We hope to see you next week. The Downtown Brooklyn Arts Management Fellowship partners are Mark Morris Dance Group, Theater for a New Audience, Museum of Contemporary African Diasporan Arts, and Brick. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle, with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker, and our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.